Now, in 1845, uh, this man, Captain John Franklin, set out with two ships and 138 English sailors to chart a northwest passage around the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. As some of you will know, they never returned. Now, even though they were planning an Arctic expedition that was expected to last for two to three years, the sailors carried no special clothing other than their uniforms. They only had a 12-day supply of coal for the auxiliary steam engines should the wind go slack. But they did take with them a 1,200-volume library, an organ, fine china, and cut glass goblets, as well as silver, knives, forks, and spoons. And years later, these place settings would be found near frozen, cannibalized bodies. Franklin's expedition seemed better equipped, equipped for an afternoon tea party than for a dangerous voyage into the unknown. So why do I mention this? Well, today's passage forms part of our current sermon series on chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel. And these chapters contain words of Jesus to his close friends and disciples immediately before he was arrested and put on trial. Now, these friends and disciples didn't know it yet, but they would soon go to every corner of the known world as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And this most important of journeys would require that the travellers be infinitely better prepared than the Franklin expedition. And that's precisely what Jesus was doing in the chapters that we're following in this series. He was making sure that everything they needed for what lay ahead was there because they would face opposition that was not just physical but also spiritual. You see, Satan is a liar. He speaks defeat, hatred, anger and hopelessness when times are uncertain and when our hearts are troubled. Many listen to his insistent voice and allow bitterness and cynicism to become their constant companions. Worry and stress can eat away at any peace. Now, Satan cannot steal our salvation if we have turned to Christ as our saviour. But we can certainly surrender our joy and our peace to him. Now remember that in swift succession, Jesus' close friends were about to see him betrayed, arrested, put on trial, and subjected to a brutal form of execution. And I wonder how many times during that course of events must Satan have whispered to them, he's dead. God is dead. I win. 
And most of us will have heard that whisper at some time or another. Maybe even believed it for a while. Maybe we still do. And that's why, as Peter explained to us last week, Jesus reassured his close friends that because they knew and loved him, they were, do you remember the title? Heaven bound. And Pete challenged us to ensure that we too are in that same position. Now today, in the same way, Jesus' words in today's passage speak a message both of comfort and of challenge. And again, they're words to us as much as to the friends who heard them first. And Jesus' basic message of comfort is simply this. Help is on the way. Verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. You know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now most of us I've got some understanding of what it means to describe God as Father, even if we struggle to get beyond the image of an old man with a white beard. And similarly, we can relate to Jesus as God through the words and events of his life recorded in the Bible. But a lot of people get hung up on the idea of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's perhaps not helped by the older translations of the Bible, which used the phrase Holy Ghost and maybe conjured up an image of an eerie figure wrapped in a white sheet. But these verses explain that the giving of the Holy Spirit underlined three simple but very profound truths. First of all, in verse 16, simply this, God is for us. God is for us. That's basically what the word advocate means in verse 16. Other translations use the word counsellor or helper or comforter or friend. And the range of words comes about simply because the translators are struggling <clears throat> to communicate in a single word the full meaning of what is being said. Now, one image that I find helpful is of an athletics trainer calling out words of encouragement. You can do this. You're almost there. Keep going. Give it everything you've got. And just so, the message of the Holy Spirit to us, both as individuals and as a church, is this. Hang on in there. Don't give up. Notice that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another advocate. In other words, his role is to continue the role that Jesus himself has up to now been able to do face to face with his closest friends. The Holy Spirit is in effect the spirit of Jesus himself, freed from the physical limitations of the human body and able to walk alongside us, each of us, in our sorrows as well as our joys, in our difficulties 
as well as in our triumphs. God is for us. But then verse 16 shows us that the giving of the Holy Spirit means that God is with us forever. Grandad was visiting his daughter's house for lunch. He heard sounds of sobbing coming from the, the games room. And when he walked in, he saw his little granddaughter standing in the playpen, sobbing. And when she saw Grandad, her face lit up and she stretched out her arms. Out, Grandad, out. And he began to reach down to rescue the little girl from her distress. But just then, law and order entered the room in the form of his daughter. No, Dad, she's been very naughty and she's got to stay there till lunch is ready. So what was he to do? He was torn between compassion for his granddaughter and loyalty to his daughter. In a tiny way, it was the very same dilemma which a holy but loving God faces when confronted with the failings and wrongdoings of us, his creatures. Which is more important, mercy or justice? Well, in the end, the granddad carefully climbed into the playpen and sat down next to his granddaughter. How long is your sentence, he asked. I'll serve it with you. And finding a big, jolly granddad filling her prison cell, the little girl found not release from her plight, but comfort even in her plight. And that's a picture of what Jesus did for those close to him during his life on earth. And it's also an important part of what his Holy Spirit does today. Through him, God is with us forever. But verse 17 goes on to show us that beyond this, God is in us. Those close friends of Jesus who heard rather than read his words knew all about the Holy Spirit from what we call the Old Testament how he moved in the lives of people like Samson, David, Deborah, all the great leaders of old. And how when a person such as King Saul willfully and repeatedly defied God, the Holy Spirit would depart from him. And how after David sinned with adultery and murder, he begged God in Psalm 51 verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now what Jesus' close friends didn't realise at this point is that in just a few weeks' time at the Feast of Pentecost, they would experience the reality of what it means to have the Holy Spirit living within them. The Spirit would appear like tongues of fire. They'd find themselves doing things they could never do before. They would speak in foreign languages, declaring God's love to everyone in, a, in the crowd in a way that each could understand. 
their fear and timidity would be gone. They would know exactly what to say. And the crucial thing is this. The book of Acts records this new pattern. Whenever someone accepts Jesus as their saviour, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and gives them power to do what they could not otherwise do on their own. God is for us. God is with us. God is in us. Well, yes, you say. I know all about that. I've been hearing it for years. And yes, on the face of it, they're very simple messages. Simple, but oh so profound. And I believe we're at a time when some, maybe many of us, need to be reminded of these basic truths. I'm deeply conscious that many members of this church are going through dark and difficult times. And for the church as a whole, this period of uncertainty when we're awaiting the appointment of a new rector brings its own difficulties, both individually and as a church. We need to seek in prayer the comforting, counselling, helping support of the Holy Spirit and grasp that in so doing, he is with us, walking alongside us in our joys and especially in our sorrows. And we need to claim daily his power at work within us. But what might that mean in practice? Well, our passage offers two thoughts. First, verse 17 describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. And then in verse 26, we read the implications of this. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. We can actually see the fruit of that promise in the lives who heard Jesus' words at first hand in the words of the New Testament, where we have recorded for the benefit of future generations the recollections and experiences of key individuals in the life of the early church. But they were in a distinct minority. And verse 17 tells us why the world in general cannot accept God's Holy Spirit. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now I, like most people, enjoy looking up at the night sky. But while I simply enjoy the spectacle... If you've got some knowledge of astronomy, you could stand beside me and explain to me what we're seeing. Similarly, when I'm out walking, I take note of the plants and flowers around me. But if you've got some knowledge of natural history, you could identify the plants to me and explain to me why they grow in that particular place. Or if I visit an art gallery, my observations will be at the level, I like that painting, I don't like that one. 
But if you've got some knowledge of how to paint and of the history of art, you could explain to me the techniques used to produce that painting and the message that the artist is trying to convey. What we see and what we experience depends on what we bring to the sight and the experience. Those who live as if there is no God can have no understanding of the Holy Spirit or indeed anything to do with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So what about us? If one role of the Holy Spirit is to teach us and remind us of Jesus' words, we, his followers, should be willing and active learners. There's never any time in life when we as Christians can say we know the whole truth about God. If we believe we've got nothing more to learn, we've not even begun to understand the nature of God and his claim on our lives. And we won't just stop going forward as Christians, we'll go backwards. If one role of the Holy Spirit is as a teacher, a second role is spelled out in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The peace which the world offers is the peace of escape the peace which comes from avoiding trouble, from refusing to face things. But the peace of which Jesus speaks is independent of outward circumstances. Remember that when what he calls my peace was being promised, not in an atmosphere of relaxation and enjoyment, but at the very moment when the train of events leading to his crucifixion was about to unfold. For us, this is a peace born from a living personal relationship with Jesus and deepened through growing surrender of life to his guidance. Well, that's all very well, you say, but when I consider my life... I can't remember the last time I positively experienced God being for me or with me or in me. And it's ages since I experienced him teaching me or bringing me peace. And I wonder if one reason for this is perhaps that while we focus readily on the message of comfort contained in a passage such as this, we willfully ignore 
the message of challenge. You see, strictly speaking, I preach this sermon back to front because the passage begins in verse 15 with these words. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And Jesus emphasizes their importance by repeating the message in verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Slaves obey because they have to. There's no choice. Employees obey because they need to, to keep their jobs. But believers are called to obey God's word because we choose to, out of a relationship with God based on love. If you love me, says Jesus, you will obey what I command. So if I say I love him, do I talk to him regularly, never, or just when I'm complaining or when I want something? In Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, we read, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, pre present your requests to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And if I say I love him, do I allow him to speak to me? In prayer, in reading the Bible, here in church. And if I say I love him, do I meet to worship him regularly? Well, I suppose that by definition, this is a classic case of preaching to the converted. But, well, maybe there are some of us who need to take to heart the message of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And if I say, I love him, do I give him what is his? In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi doesn't pull his punches on this subject. In a prophecy from God, he writes in chapter 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. I wonder, can the same charge be leveled against me, against you? And then if I say I love him, do I serve him in my home, in my work, in my social life, within the life of the church? How well do you, how well do I measure up? Here are some sobering questions for each of us. If I were as devoted to my job as I am to Jesus, would I still be in employment? 
If I were as faithful to my spouse as I am to Jesus, would I still be married? If I paid my bills like I give to God's work, would I have a roof over my head or even food on my table? And if I obeyed the law of the land as I obey God's commands, would I be behind bars? The obedience of Jesus' closest friends was going to be tested to the limit, both in the days immediately after they heard these words and in the years which followed. Indeed, some of them would face death as a result of that obedience. But they would testify that the promise of the Holy Spirit was a reality. And this has been the experience of countless Christians down the ages. The more we obey God, the more we understand him, the more we experience his loving presence. So let us, as a church and as individuals, claim anew this promise and seek to live each day in obedience to the God who is for us, with us, and in us. Amen.